Good evening, everyone. Um, great to see such a turnout for Francis's talk in San Francisco. This is France. <laughs> Very good. I should do that. I do that because I'm from South Australia originally, so we dance. Thanks, Bill. Uh, look, welcome to the National Library of Australia. I'm Martin Woods. Um, it's my pleasure to welcome you what is the final fellowship presentation for 2017 and congratulations Robin, Beth, the team at Margie. It's been a big year and uh, congratulations. Um, before we launch into tonight's presentation, I acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and pay my respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people past and present. Um, as our uh, Director-General Murray-Louise Ayres recently said, um, our fellowships are an investment in curiosity. Curiosity is a word I think exemplifies our fellows. They come to the library with a deep desire to learn about their topic and inquisitiveness that may lead them and us in surprising directions. I'm very grateful to the many private donors who've been willing to invest in the curiosity of Australia's research community, never quite knowing where the research will lead. I'm grateful to Deidre McCann and Kevin McCann AM and the Macquarie Group Foundation for their support for 2017 fellow Dr. Francis Steele, Senior Lecturer in History, School of Humanities and Social Inquiry at University of Wollongong. And tonight is one for the curious. Early on, I had the pleasure of reading Francis's fellowship application, as it was then titled, Full Cargoes, Australia-Pacific Food Trades and Transformations in the Age of Refrigeration. It's a bit pithy tonight. As a maps curator, it appealed to me especially as a custodian of collection materials steeped in the Pacific and in trade between Australia and the Pacific. Francis is a leading academic in cultural, commercial, and colonial history of the Pacific. Her first book, Oceania Under Steam, was shortlisted for the Ernest Scott Prize in 2012. She describes herself as a historian of the Pacific world, and in reading her CV, it was abundantly clear how many ways there are into the space. Research grants, articles, books, and book chapters include study of trans-Pacific passenger shipping in the steam age, history of domestic service in the Asia-Pacific, trans-oceanic ties, aspects of shipboard travel and tourism, sea transport and mobility, even New Zealand and the sea. Go figure. Francis also established and currently co-convenes the Colonial and Settler Studies Research Network at the University of Wollongong, and it's one of those personal investments that goes beyond the shores of personal research. Congratulations on that. And as you will hear, her fellowship has focused on industrial innovation, how freezing perishables spanned different climates and opened up new trades between Australia and the Pacific Islands. It promises to reveal a new and welcome dimension. I've enjoyed a number of fleeting conversations with Francis about her research, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about her work this evening. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Francis Steele. Thank you, Martin, um, for that very kind introduction. And thanks, everyone, for being here this evening. Now, my fellowship here at the library represents the startup stage, as it were, of a new research project and so what I'm attempting tonight is more in the way, more in the nature of a preliminary presentation uh, to discuss some of the early findings uh, and interesting things I've come across over the last couple of months rather than any well-developed uh, conclusions. Now, I would imagine that for many of us, our conventional reference point for the history of refrigeration and food trades would likely be the development of the trade in frozen meat between Australasia and Britain. 
In the late 19th century, as we fairly well know, uh, Britain struggled to satisfy its domestic demand for animal protein, while Australia and New Zealand had an oversupply of sheep. Live shipment was, of course, not a practical option. While tinned meat found little favour uh, with consumers in metropolitan markets, refrigerated shipping hence promised uh, a novel solution. A key milestone in Australian economic history is the departure of the ship Strathlaven in late 1879 from Sydney and Melbourne carrying about 400 carcasses of frozen mutton and beef. The cargo arrived in London in quality condition, much to the delight, not least, of the agent for the stock owners, a Mr. A. Lamb. Seriously, you, you just can't make this stuff up. So the Strathlaven shipment was soon followed by the voyage of the Dunedin, named for my hometown in New Zealand, uh, in 1882 carrying over 6,000 carcasses. So the trade quickly expanded. Notwithstanding initial wariness in Britain about the consumption uh, of uh, frozen meat, with over 1 million carcasses shipped every year from Australia by, by the mid-1890s and double that from New Zealand. Meat exports were soon followed by butter and cheese and later fruit. These expanding markets stimulated colonial productivity and in parallel lowered British metropolitan self-sufficiency. But what histories might emerge if we reorient the focus of inquiry away from this more familiar empire story and instead look out from Australia into the Pacific? What impact did refrigeration have on food trades and relations around food in the region? It is such questions that brought me here to the National Library and which raise some of the issues my project, I hope, will be able to address. So I'd like to acknowledge the Library for taking a leap with what was perhaps a less immediately obvious project proposal. And I'm particularly grateful to the sponsors of my fellowship Deirdre McCann and Kevin McCann AM and the Macquarie Group Foundation, whose generosity has made this uh, research possible. And I'd especially like to thank them uh, for supporting work on the Pacific. I've been assisted in countless ways by staff across this institution, and it really has been quite an incredible uh, and immensely uh, enjoyable few months. And as I said at uh, the outset, the the fellowship marks the beginning of a new project for me, and I'd like to say a little more now about my own pathway to this topic. In my recent work, I've studied colonial maritime uh, connections in the Pacific, exploring the impact of the introduction of steamships and the shipping routes, uh, routes opened up by steam in relations between New Zealand and Australia and with their immediate island neighbours and right across the ocean to the United States and Canada. Now, a large part of this work centred on the Union Steamship Company of New Zealand, which grew from its Dunedin base to become the largest company in the Pacific, at its height operating a fleet of 75 ships. It dominated the coastal New Zealand, the Trans-Tasman, the Tasmanian, uh, Tasmanian trades, trades to Fiji, to Tonga, to Samoa, the Cook Islands and Tahiti, and eventually the principal trans-Pacific mail routes to both San Francisco uh, and Vancouver, stylized here and the red and blue lines uh, on this map. Now, Steve's, uh, Steve's chief import lay in freeing up shipping from the environmental constraints of winds and waves. Sea travel became faster and more predictable and for the first time could be scheduled with some confidence. In the process, it garnered new associations with comfort and pleasure, which in turn promoted new images of the Pacific and its islands, and new projects for Australasian commercial and political influence in the region. Now, my work up to now uh, has followed the people 
who moved through the Pacific along these networks of steam. But as I researched these networks and connections, it became clear to me that shipping companies relied just as much on cargo. People and goods moved together in the same ships along the same paths. This seems uh, an obvious point. Indeed, there was such a close symbiosis between cargo and passenger traffic that it is surprising that histories uh, of the modern Pacific reveal very little about the circulations of cargo, especially food. Now, steam actually came quite late to the Pacific. It was first applied to shipping in British coastal trades uh, and on the North American lakes in the first decades of the 19th century. Then eventually in transatlantic trades and through the preeminent imperial company, P&O, from Britain to India and Singapore and eventually Australia. Now, none of this was by any means a smooth history. But the first timetabled steamship networks in the Pacific only date from the late 1870s. Through the operations of the Union Steamship Company, but also the Sydney-based Burns Phil. And it's linked back here. It's obviously important also for trades into Asia. And the Australian United Steam Navigation Company. Now, all three of these companies ran services into the islands by the mid-1880s. Significantly, by the time steam came to the Pacific, marine refrigeration was already being developed and tested. Hence, in the Pacific, unlike elsewhere, steam and refrigeration came together. So, let me now turn to this theme of cold. Simply put, cold is the absence of heat. The innovation of mechanical cold is the process of removing heat from one place to another under controlled conditions. Obviously, the efforts and ability to keep perishable foods cold predate the advent of mechanical uh, or artificial refrigeration, which is my particular interest in this project. Sydney imported natural ice from North America in the first half of the 19th century, harvested from frozen lakes and shipped out, packed in sawdust. By the 1860s, refrigeration machinery supported the development of a domestic manufactured, manufactured ice industry, with the techno technology applied to freeze the space for storing food, but also to freeze water. Ice would continue to be central for domestic cooling appliances, such as ice boxes, and this latest model ice refrigerator, advertised uh, in the late 1920s. Thus, the very word refrigerator references the state of cold, and not necessarily the mechanical equipment used to achieve it. Now, many different mechanical methods were applied to achieve refrigeration including the expansion of compressed air or the evaporation of a volatile liquid. And I haven't really been able to delve much uh, into the technological history of refrigeration yet. And it seems very interesting, given you know, the various technologies uh, that were used to achieve it. But that study for me will be a bit later. I must admit, when I see when I open books or files like this, um, I've had a bit of a brain freeze, so it's all a bit beyond me, I must say. Um, but through the application of refrigeration, perishable foods could be either chilled or frozen. Both effects were transformative because they arrested the natural processes of spoilage and decay. Refrigeration suspended, as it were, the last stage in time's natural cycle. But it did more than merely slow spoilage. Unlike other modes of food preservation, such as drying or canning, refrigeration kept foods fresh, just as nature produced it, and thus maintained the nutritive value of food. Over time, refrigeration also offered the means to overcome seasonality and enhance the year-round uh, variety of available food. 
In fact, it was regarded as an improvement on nature, and that while nature rested, human needs for nature's bounty did not. Thus, refrigeration, in a sense, seemed to offer a technological return to nature. It, moreover, opened up new trading routes and conceptualizations of markets, stretching the distance between sites of production and sites of consumption. Climate, seasons, plenty, scarcity, distance will all shake hands. As the Australian pioneer of refrigeration, Thomas Sutcliffe Moore, predicted in 1875, and he plays uh, an important part in my story today. The Strathlaven shipment, which arrived in London in 1880, came too late for Maud, who had passed away two years earlier. But he was very gung-ho about the prospects and impact of refrigeration. From it, he argued, there would come enough for all. By his own estimates, Maud had invested over £80,000, which is the equivalent of around $10 million today, in an effort to prove the commercial viability of the trade in frozen meat to England. The investments included a slaughterhouse and chilling establishment in the Blue Mountains, a freezing depot at uh, Darling Harbour, special chilled meat vans designed for the railways, and a milk depot in the southern tablelands. Mort, though, would likely have balked at the Strathlaven experiment, as he refused to consign small shipments on which special high rates would be charged his sole object being to prove the potential for a continuous large-scale trade. And it's in relation to this question of commercial viability that I came across what might be the first discussion of refrigeration in the Pacific. Following his 1875 speech before members of the Agricultural Society of New South Wales, Mort was confronted by a prominent stock owner, who had turned up in expectation of an announcement of when the first consignments would be shipped. Frustrated at hearing nothing satisfactory, he challenged Mort on why he simply didn't send a small experimental shipment of frozen meat to New Caledonia. Mort retorted that he clearly knew nothing about freezing. He could send a shipment to New Caledonia, but there would be no one there to receive it, and thus it would be no trial at all. The only proper test, he insisted, was to send a shipment on a long voyage. So potential markets in the Pacific were not yet large enough uh, to compete with established empire networks. The application of marine refrigeration in the Pacific would initially serve a more limited and contained purpose for the shipboard provisioning of crew and passengers and small consignments for European residents in various island ports, uh, a point to which I will return shortly. So the key for opening up new markets, as we've seen, was the application of mechanical coal to long-distance transportation. And the biggest challenge was the duplication of the whole machinery on board ship, hence the drawn-out efforts and frustrations of Mort and his colleagues. In the earliest successful exports uh, to England, the meat was frozen on board. But the prospects for any regular trade also depended on the expansion of cold storage facilities on land. To ease the pressures in getting produce to port, but most significantly, to prevent alternate periods of glut and scarcity. So rather than sell on a crowded market, produce from farms and soon orchards could be held back until the market was ready. So cold storage act as, acted as a kind of regulating influence. Now, cold stores were clearly vital at the port, but they had to begin at the site of production, or as close to it as possible. As livestock shed weight during transit to distant abattoirs, an impact felt more in Australia than in New Zealand, it made evident sense to process meat as close as possible to the farm. Then transport carcasses on chilled uh, trucks or, or train carriages to port. As to fruit, it could benefit from pre-calling immediately 
after harvest as a means to minimize the release of gases, uh, which caused its deterioration in transit. So if the measure of a progressive and modern orchard was its possession of a coal store, it seemed that one measure of modern Australia was soon found in the number and capacity of such facilities dotted across the continent. Still, despite some evident progress, it was all a bit too drawn out for some interested commentators. In 1911, one such commentator writing in the Sydney Morning Herald deplored Sydney's feeble efforts to develop cold storage, which according to him, seemed little advanced since Mort's days. Whereas other civilized countries had made remarkable strides. And the commentator rounded off his denunciation by looking out to sea, with, I guess from our, from our place in history, reads as a rather matter-of-fact uh, description. But from the 1920s, you start to see tables uh, enumerating the coal stores at each st in each state, and books with titles like the 1929 Australian text, Refrigeration, and Essential to National Health, Security, Progress. We can thus speak of the beginnings uh, of the development of a cold chain, an unbroken series of cold places in which chilled or frozen cargo could be stored and conveyed. And the term appears to have entered use around 1907. The development was also described as the successful handling of export perishables from the home store to the floating store uh, and finally the overseas store. Now, food did not always enter cold storage in optimal condition, but sometimes overripe or already deteriorating, uh, cold storage was too often seen uh, as a last resort, while poor handling or careless stowage invariably compounded the damage caused by delays. Even if produce was placed in cold storage in a timely manner, cross-contamination posed another threat. And this stimulated much research on the chemical and biological changes of food and storage, and the best methods of storing and transporting different kinds of foods with different decaying properties, and hence needing different temperatures and separate chambers. So this all took quite a long time to understand and to perfect. And guides prepared by the noted American expert on refrigeration, Mary Pennington, uh, were well, well regarded also in Australia. Shippers also stood to avoid hefty claims by keeping problem cargoes separate. For gases released by fruit would taint eggs, butter and cheese. Apples and pears were best not stowed together. Early season lamb should not be stowed above mutton. And rabbits kept best in the coolest part of the chamber. And so on uh, and so forth. With this new ability to stockpile perishables, Cold storage also stimulated consumer concerns about transparency and food safety and quality. How were consumers to be sure about the real age of produce? Furthermore, while it was a regulating influence, unscrupulous speculators, monopolists or profiteers might use cold storage to counter supplies and keep up prices. Thus, as one editorial warned in 1917, Cold storage is made the means of inflicting a grave injury to the public. There were other hazards. With reports of people inadvertently locking themselves in ships' refrigerated chambers or in cool stores, leading here to quite other, uh, other quite practical suggestions on the successful and life-sustaining operation of the cold chain. Okay. In the Pacific, while indigenous people had developed their own forms of food preservation, including fermentation, smoking, and drying, fledgling European settlements in coastal Australia depended on island trades and food for basic survival, exemplified by the early 19th century salt pork trade between Tahiti and New South Wales. In the second half of the 19th century, we see the growth of the plantation economy across the Pacific for cotton and cocoa, 
but most significantly sugar and copra, the dried flesh of the coconut. Now these crops weren't reliant on a coal chain, but it's in the context of their production that we see the first significant importations of food into the Pacific. With canned meat and rice stipulated as rations for the thousands of islanders indentured to work on plantations. In turn, cattle were imported to maintain the grass on plantations and supplied some European planters with fresh meat and milk. Canned meat is widely known in the Pacific as halipi. Halipi is a transliteration of Halibees, the New Zealand meat processing company, which enjoyed a well-established monopoly and sold under a range of brands, Crown, Pacific and Arrow. It's also known in some places as pisupo, a transliteration of pisup, the first food that came into the Pacific in a can, uh, and but soon became a generic word for all tinned foods. And there's other native names there in the corner um, of that ad to de describe tinned meat. Even by 1900, New Zealand brands were so esteemed that Australian manufacturers tried to pass off their canned meats as of New Zealand origin. However, island consumers do not appear to have been easily fooled by the counterfeit claims. Tinned meats also sustained Europeans living in the islands. This advertisement for the Sydney Meat Preserving Company combines its twin markets for native trade and for European table. The former with far less variety are also sold in bulk. A trade report in 1919 observed that people in Samoa and Tonga preferred tinned meat with a high fat percentage. And meat was sometimes classified as a fat in these early 20th century sources, rather than as a protein uh, as we, we will readily understand it uh, today. And there are arguably continuities here with the controversial uh, export trade in fatty meats in the present day. Notably, mutton flaps from New Zealand uh, and turkey tails from the United States. Popular cuts, or perhaps off-cuts, uh, on many islands and implicated, along with fatty tinned meat, in the challenges of obesity and diabetes confronting the region. But certainly canned meats came before refrigerated supplies and would soon alter local patterns of production and consumption. So this sculpture of pressed uh, cans, one in a series by Michael Tuffery, a New Zealand-born artist of Samoan, Cook Island and Tahitian heritage, speaks to the way this imported food has replaced local foods uh, in feasts and in gift-giving, but also to the problems that result from colonial economies, um, both dietary and ecological, including the uh, introduction of livestock to rather fragile island environments in some parts of the Pacific, but also, also the waste from discarded cans. Now the continued prevalence of canned food clearly attests to the ways in which tropical environments have presented natural challenges to the transport and storage and hence the wider commodification of perishable food. Securing a coal chain in the islands was slow and it remains highly uneven to this day, but it's also easily broken. A 1979 report on food distribution systems in Tonga, for example, noted that storekeepers in the main centres usually turned off their refrigerators and freezers at night uh, and sometimes intermittently during the day uh, to cut down on electricity. Now, when I commenced my research here at the library, I had anticipated that the main hubs uh, of refrigeration in the Pacific would coincide with the key ports of call along the steamship lines that I've been so preoccupied with. In fact, uh, as I soon discovered, the ports hooked up to regular steamship services did not necessarily have cold storage facilities, or not for a very long time. For much of the island Pacific, the cold chain was the ship. So, as the Irish journalist and travel writer Beatrice Grimshaw 
put it in her 1907 travel log in the strange South Seas. Steamer day is feast day. Beef day, ice day. Day for enjoying all the edibles that cannot be had on the island itself. There is mutton in Rarotonga, but not much at the best of times, and in beef there is none at all. So all the white folk order beef to come up monthly in the ship's cold storage. And for two happy days, if the meat will keep no longer, they enjoy a feast that might perhaps more fairly be called a feed. About noon on steamer day, a savoury smell to which the island has long been a stranger begins to diffuse itself throughout Avarua. Everyone with true island hospitality is asking everyone else to lunch and dinner. The resident commissioner was usually gifted a block of ice by the steamship captain. But he knew all too well that if he enjoyed it on his own, he would, in the island world, be considered capable of any crime. So he wrapped it up in blankets to give a dinner party in its honour the following day. So ice uh, and perishable, uh, perishable produce took on a kind of talismanic quality for colonial communities established in port, occasionally enlivening what was otherwise a monotonous diet of tin food, some of which, particularly vegetables, were described as invariably tasting like iron filings boiled in dishwater. But well off the primary routes of Trans-Pacific and inter-island trade, Ocean Island, or Banaba, and the former Gilbert and Alice Islands colony, or present-day Kiribati, and Pleasant Island, or Nauru, were chilled to an extent unknown in other parts of the Pacific. So this is a busy map of various routes. I've just tried to zoom in a little bit. I don't know if it'll work. But Nauru and Banabar are off those lines, okay? They're not connected routinely, uh, as many others, other islands in the Pacific are up there in the equatorial region. Both islands were extensively mined for phosphate by Britain, Australia, and New Zealand to fertilize the farmlands that would yield the fat lands and pure butter ultimately destined for Britain's larders, as well as the tinned meat and bags of flour sent back to the islands. The European phosphate employees of both Barnaba and Nauru could boast of a luxury life, enjoying modern domestic comforts, sewage and fresh water systems, electric light, telephones, and refrigeration. On Nauru, by the mid-1920s, a diesel-powered refrigerating plant supplied staff daily with ice. Cattle and sheep were shipped from Sydney, slaughtered on arrival, and placed in refrigerating chambers, from where meat would be issued to British residents three or four times a week. Ocean Island would also serve as a base from which to occasionally provision colonial administrators stationed elsewhere in the Gilbert and Alice Islands colony with fresh meat uh, and vegetables. So these developed facilities improved the lives of a select minority, yet indigenous communities would be deprived of their traditional sources of sustenance. The literal consumption of Ocean Island through phosphate mining rendered it uninhabitable ultimately leading to the relocation of the Banaban community to Rumbi, an island in the Fiji group from 1945. So the history of ruin and revitalization of these communities is at the heart of ANU scholar Katerina Tewa's uh, work and forms the basis of her current exhibition at Carriage Works uh, in Sydney. So refrigeration plants were also established near gold fields, for instance in New Guinea, and such facilities no doubt played a part in attracting more people to these extractive uh, industries. Thus the geographies of refrigeration, uh, as I'm discovering, start to map more closely to sites of intensive environmental uh, exploitation, and not simply those routine routes uh, of traffic and trade. Indicating distinct pockets of cold, I think, rather than uh, kind of linear chains of cold, at least uh, for the first half of the 20th century. But 
to return to the principal shipping routes, cold storage facilities would appear in key ports, notably Honolulu, which is probably the most important, uh, boasting extensive storage capacity by the mid-1920s in buildings which were even promoted uh, as a tourist attraction. By this time, Australia and New Zealand were exporting quantities of frozen meat to the port, destined largely to feed the 12,000 American troops stationed there. Indeed, uh, in 1929, the Hawaiian Meat Company contracted with a number of Australian firms to supply annually nearly two and a half million pounds of frozen meat to the military because imports from the US mainland were deemed too expensive. So again, then, this underlines the importance of cold storage for the provisioning of colonial officials, residents, and troops, and for marking distinctions, I think, between the food cultures of the colonized and the colonizers. And this mirrors a broader pattern in that the military was already an assured market which both Australia and New Zealand, as early as the 1880s, were hopeful of supplying, either by contracting with the Imperial Army in India or forces in the Dutch East Indies. It also explains why South Africa was a significant export market uh, in the early 20th century. And I could put up a range of these um, tallies uh, from the newspapers, but obviously um, Britain and Europe dominating, but South Africa is pretty significant in that list. And I think a lot of those other places are also, you know, sites of colonial occupation. Indeed, uh, Australian interests, including Burns Philp, established and supplied Singapore Cold Storage, an institution that is still in operation today, which opened in 1903, whose main clients would be the British Army and Navy. So while settler colonial exports uh, to Britain supported established imperial dietary uh, preferences for meat and dairy, so what people were already eating, in the tropics, refrigeration also stimulated entirely new tastes and norms of consumption. In some parts of the Pacific, eating imported foods like butter became a cultural marker of the advanced islander and this was the impression of a U.S. consul uh, in Fiji in the 1920s, reporting on prospects for food imports uh, from America. And his comments echo those expressed at the first food conference of the Pan-Pacific Research Institution, held in Honolulu in 1924, an organization concerned with problems of food production, distribution, conservation, and consumption. And here a speaker asserted that the best physically developed peoples of the world are those who consume large quantities of dairy products. And yet he noted in the Pacific, uh, dairy is quite unknown. Now this presenter didn't mention Fiji, which had invested in local dairying after World War I, an occupation regarded as highly suited to returned Anglo soldiers uh, and sailors would be trained up by dairy experts from Australia. And the first pound of creamery butter was produced in 1922. Fiji was soon exporting its surplus, not only to Britain, where it was graded as on par with best quality New Zealand butter, but also to Hawaii. So it's the discovery of such, such exchanges that encourages me to think past easy distinctions between the more familiar products of settler colonial farms and the more exotic products uh, of the tropical empire. Because it's precisely refrigeration uh, and refashioning climates that makes these sorts of entanglements possible, that makes a trade in butter between Fiji and Hawaii possible. So in further research, I really do hope to uh, explore how the cold chain stimulated not only new tastes in the tropics, but also new industries, uh, and transform the very possibilities of tropical production. So most uh, of my examples have positioned this new technology as something harnessed to benefit Europeans, 
Africa and the Pacific. Yet, items prized in island diets, notably fruit, now began to compete in regional and imperial trades. The banana was the first uh, globally traded fruit. And certain uh, banana varieties were indigenous to the Pacific. But intensive monoculture production would favor the banana type best suited uh, to ocean transport. This included the Cavendish uh, on the left there, which had been introduced to the Pacific uh, by British missionaries in the middle of the 19th century, and the Varuma shell on the right, a slightly bigger and taller variety introduced from the West Indies uh, via Kew Gardens, and known in Fijian as the Jaina Balabu, or the Tall China variety. And the bananas known generically in Fijian as Jaina, um, probably because of the prominent position of Chinese commercial interests uh, from Australia uh, and Fiji banana production and export from the mid-1880s. So Fiji was the first island group to engage in banana export, trading the predominantly Gros Michel variety in Australia and New Zealand, where the fruit quickly became an essential food item, referred to as a poor man's food. In Australia's southern states, consumers were prepared to pay up to three times as much for Fiji bananas over those produced in Queensland, where the smaller Cavendish variety flourished. And Fijian bananas were so popular, it seems about 90% of bananas in Australia were marketed as uh, of Fijian origin, regardless of where they were grown, um, with the Cavendish invariably sold as the small Fiji. But white producers in Queensland would soon protest uh, at the perceived unfair advantages enjoyed by Fiji, decrying a market dominated by cheaply produced black rowan fruit, uh, notwithstanding the fact their own crop uh, enjoyed a significant price advantage. Suva, unlike ports in northern Queensland, had a direct steamer service with Melbourne and Sydney. Uh, and thus, Fiji bananas reached southern markets faster. Fiji producers were also assured of adequate uh, ventilated cargo space, whereas ships sent to Queensland um, invariably lacked such facilities. If shipped green, bananas might survive transit without refrigeration. Yet even chilled or ventilated storage could do nothing to reverse damage caused by rough handling. Wharf workers frequently climbing over bananas or dropping bunches into the ship's holes, treating bananas like railway iron rather than as carefully as eggs. And it's not uncommon um, to see whole shipments condemned on arrival in Sydney, with coal lumpers standing knee-deep in rotten bananas, shoveling them into the ocean. In 1921, Australia placed a prohibitive duty on Fiji bananas to support Queensland production, which took off, uh, assisted in turn by the use of Nauru phosphate uh, enriched fertilizers. This forced Fiji to look to new markets in New Zealand, where it competed with exports from Samoa and the Cook Islands, as well as right across the Pacific to Vancouver. Trade made possible because of the established steamship service between Australia and Canada, that red line I showed you earlier uh, that hooked up Fiji and Hawaii uh, en route. Yet the Fiji products seldom stood up against the uniform Central American fruit that monopolised uh, the Canadian market. So it was a brief window um, in the late uh, 1930s. Fiji bananas would soon trickle back into Australia, though, after the Ottawa Agreement in 1932 reduced duties in support of empire trade. Although Queensland producers protested loudly, Fiji imports from this stage would only amount to about 3% of Australian production. Still, Australia imposed a raft of other charges including primage, sales tax, quarantine, wharf charges, 
income and employment tax on profits, all charges that Australian grown fruit didn't attract. This left Fiji despondent about Australia's level of commitment to empire trade and its aspirations to regional leadership. With pleas that Australia play the game and drop bodyline bowling, as the Fijian war hero and statesman Ratu Lala Spuna put it uh, in 1934. But the Australian market never reopened sufficiently to Fiji bananas. The Gros Michel variety would soon be ravaged globally by Panama disease, while further diseases, viruses, cyclones, and flooding would put an end to the Fiji export trade by around the mid-1970s. Monoculture banana production, though, remains vulnerable to disease, to disease even today, of course, with some recent reports speaking of the imminent death of the Cavendish, which is the one we're buying at our supermarkets today. Elsewhere in the Pacific, refrigeration couldn't easily overcome geography in developing a profitable export trade in fruit. Poor local transport made it difficult to get produce to markets, such as in the Cook Islands, while the lack of suitable harbours entailed excessive handling uh, of fruit from shore to ship, getting it over the reef bed from the bottom image. And again, this would entail much loss to island producers in the first half of the 20th century, who'd be encouraged to get involved in you know, expanding their production of fruit, but were facing all these other challenges in the process. Now, in keeping with my opening slide and the ad slide for the, the image for the advertisement uh, of my talk, I should perhaps offer a few comments uh, about the advent of domestic refrigeration in Australia and the islands. Now, a refrigerator in the home was the last link uh, in the cold chain, and that mechanical cold was first applied to industrial-scale storage facilities and to shipping and only much later to smaller domestic appliances, because this demanded a whole new kind of um, new technological innovations to, to achieve this. There were earlier methods for keeping perishable foods cold in the home, so the meat safe uh, and the ice box, if you could afford it, uh, and already had a ready supply of ice. But by the 1920s, the electric refrigerator was beginning to be marketed as a luxury unit for the home. Uptake in Australia was very small, and in the mid-1930s, industry commentators considered whether domestic refrigerators had sufficient sales appeal in their utilitarian appearance, without colours and little shapely proportions. So the Australian housewife, as an industry journal put it, may obtain the guardian of the nation's health but once its novelty fades, she would likely lament that it does not quite harmonise in the decorative scheme of the home. Now these considerations seem rather remote from the Pacific, where potential consumers were presented with more functional options, both for external cold storage, run-on petrol engines, and smaller domestic models reliant not on electricity or gas, or proximity to an ice works, but solely on our old and trusted friend, the Primus stove, and therefore within budget of everyone. Advertising uh, for the freezer also cautioned that hundreds of lives have been lost in the Pacific Islands over the last half century. Deaths put down to tropical fever when the real cause was food poisoning. Certainly similar models uh, were also marketed across Australia for those in outback regions and otherwise off the beaten track. And living for fresh meat, uh, as it's put here, from kill to kill. And thus completely independent uh, of any cold chain. World War II interrupted refrigerator production. And some factories were turned to manufacturing munitions like the Charles Hope factory in Brisbane to service American military vehicles. Electrolux, which opened a refrigerator and vacuum cleaner factory in Melbourne, 
1925, diverted its production to the needs of the war, where kerosene-operated refrigerators would prove vital as blood banks and were also widely used by the Red Cross uh, and the Australian Comforts Fund. In 1949, 80% of American homes and 25% of Australian homes possessed refrigerators. So the spread of uh, refrigeration received the attention of the Department of Post-War Reconstruction, which was confident of reaching a target of a fridge in every home within a decade. And indeed, by 1964, an estimated 94% of Australian uh, homes had one. But here we might consider the reverse influence of the Pacific on Australian domestic consumption. With the tropical theatre of war deployed here to attest to the robustness of the Charles Hope Cold Flame electrically operated model, uh, which nevertheless was still an attractive piece of kitchen furniture uh, despite um, its exploits um, in the tropical theatre. And indeed the model held by uh, the Museum of Victoria was still working at the time of its donation in 2001. And in recent days I have uh, heard more anecdotes even of about 1930s models that are still working, um, some of which have been on rather epic journeys across the Pacific to end up in Australia. Now, other companies also seized on the war, not only to market their domestic appliances, but to promote more nutritional norms. Uh, Werner, Werner Refrigerators, for example, lent its name to a post-war campaign to counter popular prejudices against meat consumption in hot weather. Drawing on the experiences of millions of servicemen in the tropics during the war years, which helped to show that a high-protein diet of up to a pound of meat a day contributed immeasurably towards keeping up stamina, vigour and readiness for action. And finally, the Pacific made an appearance in other more subtle, if not Frigidaire, for instance, offered its new models in either white or Hawaiian cream. And I've not been able to find out anything else about this colour, uh, how it originated. But perhaps it reflects a broader trend um, in the late 1950s for Polynesian-inspired domestic interiors, most marked certainly in California, but perhaps finding its way to Australia through manufacturers here such as General Motors. Okay, to, so to pull all of this together, um, <laughs> to study refrigeration history, I think is to at once package, as well as to connect in new ways, histories of science and technology, um, histories of agriculture and environment, trade and logistics, politics and regulation, and cultures of consumption. And I hope my talk has conveyed something of my enjoyment uh, of this early research process, which has ranged across trade reports, colonial era handbooks and travel narratives, refrigeration manuals, industry journals, newspapers, uh, advertising and other ephemera. And the NLA has really been the ideal setting for commencing this research. And I'd like to convey my thanks again to all staff. And as the project develops further, I'm really hoping it will provide a deeper understanding of aspects of the connected pasts of Australia and its Pacific Island neighbours. For food is a crucial dimension of colonial relationships and certainly um, remains one of their enduring legacies. Uh, so thank you very much.
Empire is part of this history in a big way. The minute you turn away from that empire trade, the American influence in the Pacific was um, you know, something that has to be accounted for. And Australia was frequently, Australian um, industry representatives were going to the US to see how they were managing their cold chain, how they were coping with, with, with these um, new industries. So certainly, yeah, I want to tell a broader Pacific history. But immediately, I guess, in Australia, I'm going to have to start looking at some of the companies, which is not to yet. So Burns Philp, some of the meat companies, a lot of this material is actually at ANU uh, in their business archives. So yeah, there's plenty, plenty to explore. Yes. What made, um, what made me go down this path? Well, as I sort of said it earlier in the talk, I've been following steamships around the Pacific, looking at people's stories. I've been, you know, reading travel diaries, thinking about, you know, new mobilities. But at the same time, I'm very aware that these ships aren't just carrying people. You know, they're carrying food. Uh, and the steamships have refrigeration from the get-go in the Pacific. Um, and I really thought, well, you know, I'm a cultural historian, but we don't really talk about um, trade very often. And I'm wanting to sort of Think about that in new ways through through refrigeration. <laughs> Where were the ships built? Uh, in Britain, in Scotland, yeah, in Scotland and Northern England, yeah. So the Union Steamship Company was contracting with Scottish uh, shipyards, definitely. That's a great question. Um, I guess the stuff I've read um, around refrigeration in the Pacific is more about the present. Yeah, so about these meat flaps and the trades um, that are pretty problematic, I guess, um, in many parts of the region. And I thought, well, yeah, maybe that is the end point. And there's very little um, preceding that that I've been able to find. So I guess I'm trying to provide a bit of a backstory. At the moment, my research is only going up to World War II, but it looks like I'll probably have to think about post-war and, um, you know, the changes especially, they happen just to feed people during the war. I think we're going to see quite um, a transformation as well. So, yes, like my other projects, this is probably going to be a century of work, but um, that's okay, that's okay, we'll get there. <laughs> for Asia. 
in Australia's interest in trading to Asia, which is probably just, you know, market size and all of that. But, yeah, it's morphing a little bit in my mind, but we'll see. Yeah. concepts, um, pockets of cold, cold chain, um, constant cold, so no cold. <laughs> so, and, um, and of course, you know, how industrial production often um, imitates and then replaces um, endemic commodities. I mean, if anyone has been to uh, Hawaii, um, think back to your uh, Tim, Tim Metz story of the prevalence of spam there, we, we attest. You know, it, it really is a fantastic economy. Congratulations.